Good morning. Hey, good morning. The sooner we, uh, the sooner we actually start, the sooner we're going to end, and that we get to go out and enjoy this fabulous, maybe last hot summer Sunday of the season. So who knows? So what I want to do this morning is um, do something a little bit different. And it came to me, and sometimes I get these ideas, and I think, that was a really stupid idea. And I have this conversation with God, and I think, it sounded like a really smart idea when I started it. Now it doesn't sound that smart. And somewhere around midnight last night, I thought, I'm just going to go to bed because this is not coming together. So I went to bed, and I said, I don't know how to get this to come together. I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning. It all just kind of fell into place, including my nice little props. So obviously we're going to have a little demonstration. It's not a cooking demonstration. It's a communion demonstration. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to one. I've never been to one. So that's why I was kind of wrestling with the idea of thinking, how do we actually do this? Well, the good news is I don't really know how we do this. But we're going to do it. And we are going to focus on the Lord's Supper this morning. I know. So I want to tell you a little bit about my background. Some of you know. Um, when I say the Lord's Supper or when I say communion, there's a, there's a variety of terms. And so let me just start off with that way before I get into my background on this. We use the words communion, Lord's Supper, Mass, breaking of bread, Eucharist, depending on what Christian culture we're coming out of. Uh, we use various terminologies. And this act of breaking bread together can be very different depending on the church culture we're in. So a more contemporary style church culture, they kind of have little crackers and little juice cups on the side and just kind of, you can kind of willy-nilly go up when they're singing a couple songs and just kind of do it. And I've been in a church where just kind of, oh gosh, it's coming right by me right now and you just kind of take it and you do it. I've also been to a Catholic mass. Now I'm not baptized Catholic, so I'm not able to participate in it, but it's a whole procedure that lasts probably 20, 25 minutes. The little bells go off and it's fascinating. The focus that they put on the transfiguration of the transubstantiation of the bread and the cup into the body and blood of Jesus. I've been to an Anglican service a few more times because they're a little more open to non-baptized Catholics. As long as you're baptized, if you go to an Anglican service, they'll welcome you into the fellowship of communion. Even there, I was amazed because from my evangelical background, I went to a non-evangelical Anglican church and I knew, you know, I knew my background. It was like, I'm not sure I'm going to get anything out of this because, you know, it's just not one of my type of churches. I confess, I've been a very proud man. But I went to this very liberal Anglican church down in the, state, in the southern states. And for 20 minutes, they confessed their sins and prepared for communion. And they read more scripture than I've ever heard in a church service in my life. And I thought, shut me up. Wow. By the time we actually got to communion, I was just wanting to run up there, but I didn't know how you did it. And they're not really user-friendly. They don't have a little guide to say, okay, this is how you do it. So I was actually sitting with somebody who had been a Baptist, and she was leading a whole bunch of us. And she said, okay, just follow my lead. So we literally watched everything she did. She knelt, we knelt, she did this, we did this. And that's how you learn how to do it in the Anglican church. They're very grace-filled. What an amazing time. They spent like 40 minutes preparing for the Lord's Supper. It was the longest service. They read more scriptures than I've ever heard in a church in contemporary days. It's probably like two years worth of scripture that I heard in one service at this Anglican church. But the group I was raised in, we called it the Lord's Supper. And we would spend about an hour. It used to be an hour and a half, but it cut into dinner time at the, on Sunday meals. So they had to cut it back because Sunday meals were important. 
So we cut back, and we cut it back to an hour. And it was very, very unique, very unique to that denomination. And it was something where all music was a cappella. You'd sit pretty well in a U shape or if possible in a circle. They would have one cup and one loaf. Now, just some dynamics. One cup is fine when there's like 10 or 12 of you. One cup is disgusting when there's 150 of you. And there's stuff just floating all around the top, and you're supposed to sip out of it. I'm not kidding. So it just about came to an end of the world when they invented these trays, and you can get 40 cups in a tray, and you pass them around, but it was so much more sanitary. So there are reasons why we do stuff, but the idea of one cup really stems from Jesus taking one cup. So in my background, we would go through the service, and I always found it kind of amusing, being honest, um, that we would go through this rather... And I say this respectfully, but it was kind of like dirge-style music. It was very much focused on my sin, uh, the cross, um, the agony of it all. And it would be about 45 minutes of that. Then they'd pass the bread. They'd break it and pass the bread around. And then they had real wine. Well, if you weren't used to real wine, you'd cough. But it was quite funny because, surprisingly, we were all used to real wine. Even though we weren't supposed to drink it, we were all so used to it. Growing up in Niagara, it was kind of like a common commodity, but we wouldn't talk about that. So we would have this wine, and then what I found absolutely fascinating is after the wine got passed around, we'd sing this uppity beat song, and the music sounded fantastic. And I wasn't sure if it was just a little shot of wine, got everybody all loosened up, and they were all just really, we would sing, up from the grave he arose, and we'd be standing, but up until that point, God forbid if we looked like a Pentecostal that was down the street, because that would just be really, you know, do not tap, do not do anything. I'm not sure what would happen, we never bothered to try. But in that period of time, I was, uh, I have to watch what I'm saying now because my wife was a brother and missionary and she just came into the room. So it was a wonderful time. I loved it. Uh, but when I was 11 years old, my father was a full-time worker, not to be confused with a pastor because we didn't call him that because we weren't like them. So he was, uh, it, was it was part of a, a rite of passage, so to speak, to actually get your first hymn book. The Believer's Hymn Book. And I love... Do you remember, Holly? Did you have these? No, we had these. You could tell what type of church you were going to if you had these. These were the conservative group, and we were part of that. No music, just a cappella. No, no drums. Oh, and no guitars and no women singing. Like, just none of this. So, but in the beauty of all of those days, what I recognize now as I look back, and it was actually 50 years ago that I got this from my parents, and I reread it last night. And I thought, thank you, God, for what you've done in my life. Because even at this early age, when I didn't know what was going on in my life, I've known from the age of three or four, I used to sit on the swings of my parents' house and sing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of thy beauty see, wonderful words of life. I would sing to Jesus, this little three or four-year-old kid, not knowing much about him, just knowing that he was real and that eventually I gave my life to Christ. But when I was 11, I got baptized. I became part of this fellowship. And my favorite hymn I went through last night, and maybe this is kind of what knocked me off a little bit, because this was my, number, my favorite hymn. And in the Brethren, you wouldn't have a song leader. You wouldn't have the, the men would sit in a circle, and they would give out a hymn. It was all very formal. And they would say it kind of like hymn number 386. And then say it again, 386. And then there was always a designated song starter. And you'd hear them start. And it always got lower and lower. So by the end, we were really in the basement of the song. But we'd start off 
with his beautiful, these beautiful hymns. And I want to read you part of a hymn that as I was sitting there last night, 50 years later, I remember this song always, always got to me. And it was simply this. I'm not going to read it all, but it said, Thorns wreath thy brow when hanging on the tree, man's cruelty. Why lavish love like this? O Lord on me, O Lord to me, thou lovest me. And at that young age, I would be captured by the fact that this God could love me. Like shoreless seas, thy love can know no bound, thou lovest me. Deep, vast, immense, unfathomed, Lord, profound, Lord, I love thee. And when above, my crown is at thy feet, I'll praise thee still for Calvary's mercy seat. Fifty years, and that song still stirs me. I googled the man that wrote it. It's part of a revival, part of a hymn writer in a church where there's so many people, I think it was in Scotland, so many people that would attend a church service that the carriages would block the laneway, much like the poor people in Beckwith who were on Ninth Line last night when they released all those lanterns and I got caught in that traffic. Did anybody get caught in that? It was absolutely crazy. I thought, oh my goodness, the end of the world's happened. Beckwith has all come out. There's been something that happened. Anyway, that's a side issue. So often, um, sorry, that song just, I was surprised last night that it still actually moved me. There's also a beauty of liturgy. And growing up the way I grew up, I didn't really appreciate liturgy. As I get older, I appreciate the fact that I just want to read you what the Anglican Church would actually do for communion in their preparation. And these words were written 1,900 years ago. Isn't that amazing? And I just want to read you part of it. It says, He chose to bear our griefs and sorrows and to give up his life on the cross that he might shatter the chains of evil and death and banish the darkness of sin and despair by his resurrection. He brings us into the light of your presence. Now with all creation we raise our voices to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Almost 1,900 years, that same phrase, that same passage has been passed on in countless denominations, I mean, countless churches throughout the world. Well, I'm using those as references, as ideas. My focus this morning is by no means to suggest we do anything different than what we do here, but to actually cause us to have some time this morning to actually reflect on what it's like to break bread together. I just sense that we needed to unpack it a little bit more, so... Here's how the whole scenario began. It's the week before Jesus is going to die, and he says, you know, go and prepare for room for me. We're going to have Passover. So Jesus comes to that room, and this is actually just before he is going to be led off to Gethsemane and just before he's going to die. And he's there with the disciples. They were just having an absolute common, normal, everyday meal. So they thought, but the disciples were very aware that things were happening. It was weird because Jesus was talking about how I must leave you, how, how I'm going to go. And they were like, no, no, no. Peter just said, Lord, you can't leave us. Like, no. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And it's like, oh, what's going on here? So they knew something was going on. And in the middle of this meal, it was getting dark, and, you know, the night was coming, and Jesus was going to be, be, be being betrayed soon. And they're sitting around the table, and he goes and he breaks this, just takes a, a loaf of bread. It would have been unleavened bread, but I have leavened bread today because that's part of our culture today. 
But he takes that bread and he blesses it. And he says, uh, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. That's confusing to the disciples. What do you mean? Now, just picture, we know what communion is, at least most of us. But if all of a sudden I have a loaf of bread, you're in my home for dinner, and I say, hey, we're going to eat the body of, of Christ, it's like, that's weird. Like, we don't understand. And even back then, the poor disciples, they really did not understand. But he breaks the bread and passes it around and says, remember me. Well, Lord, how are we going to forget you? What, do you, what are you going to do? We can see in hindsight, but they didn't see. So then he gets and he takes the cup. And it's interesting because Judas is around the table and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they knew it was Judas. It's like, wow, yet he's still at the table. So it says in Matthew that Jesus says, um, this is, sorry, I just jumped ahead here. Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the covenant. This is the, my new co- the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew 26, this is my, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, what are you saying? This is the last meal we're going to have together. What is really going to happen? So it was an ordinary meal. Different circumstances. Ordinary bread. Just ordinary, broken and the reason I brought the, the wheat here today is why bread and why wine? Like, why? It could have been fish, but why bread? So I would take this beautiful display, but quite frankly, I bought it at Home Depot. It was the last one. I bought it this morning, and it cost more than I thought. I didn't tell my wife how much it cost, and I don't want to wreck it, but it just looks so beautiful. And... Okay, can I be super spiritual? I went by yesterday at Home Depot at a quarter to eight, and it wasn't open, and I thought, ah! And they had some out front, and I thought, so tempting, but I'm not going to steal it. That really wouldn't work. (laughs) They weren't open. I thought, I'll just leave you 20 bucks. But (laughs) anyway, so I I just said, I have to be gone all day tomorrow. I'm not going to have, I mean, all day yesterday, and I'm not going to have a chance to get this thing. So I went up early this morning at five after eight, and there was one out front, and I thought, So that's my beautiful wheat display. Well, let me demonstrate without ruining my wheat display because it's going to, boy, it could go to Andrea Andrea and Kyle's house because they have such beautiful displays. But this is the wheat. That's why I have it. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) You're all looking at me like, yeah, okay, that's wheat. Now, I don't know actually how you get it off there, but I know you can actually buy these little wheat things, and some people actually suck on them. It's what some of the farmers used to use out west, or some of the kids out west would actually suck on them before they had chewing gum. It's disgusting. Don't do it. Take my word for it. I tried one. They're horrible. They get all mushy. But you could actually take that grain of wheat, and I brought some rocks, which I got out of my garden this morning. They're not really the real deal, but you get the idea. If you put grains of wheat here and crush it, now, if ever you've done this, please, I've never done it, so this is just for demonstration purposes. But you get the idea. If you put a grain of wheat in there, what would happen to it? Dane, what would happen to it? It would, it would be crushed, right. And eventually, it gets crushed. Now, I don't normally go around carrying white powder and paper and plastic bags since I volunteered for <laughs> Jericho Road. It makes them very nervous, but this is just flour out of my wife's kitchen. Um, but when you take wheat and you crush it, it doesn't turn into this white. It's probably got some bleaching and stuff like that. But you get the idea that it actually goes from that into this. And out of this, it goes into a loaf of bread. Now, all of that whole process, it's baked 
it's purified, it goes through the fire, the whole deal, and then we get this beautiful loaf of bread. And Jesus takes that bread and breaks, and he says, remember me as you break this bread. Something that was is transformed into something completely different. Well, even that loaf of bread is quite amazing because that loaf of bread that I bought at Walmart all of a sudden becomes to us the body of Christ. Even that gets transformed. So I love the analogies here of just something that was being made into something that's different. Well, I went out this morning. I have all these grape vines, and this is what happens if you don't pick some. The birds love them. So there were grapes on this uh, a couple days ago, but they're not anymore. So I went to the fridge. This is where we do our cooking demonstration. And I got some Walmart grapes that are from Chile or California. And if you take these, it's so much hard doing a live demonstration, but you get the idea. And I was going to squish them with my hands, but I thought, what am I going to do with grape-covered hands and stand up here with my message? So you kind of get the idea. You know, if we had the camera up front, you squish them, and the juice comes out, and then you get a whole bunch of this juice. Now, my mom grew up in Niagara. My mom used to get all these grapes, Concord grapes, put them in the steamer, and the steamer would have this thing at the bottom, and they'd all steam, and all the juice would come down. You would get grapes, grape juice like this, but it wasn't runny like this. It was like syrup. It looked like maple syrup. It was so thick. So this is actually the fruit of the vine. Now... This here came from this here. And it's pure, no sugar. It's just the real deal. If I really crushed that and left those grapes, added a little bit of an agent to it, it would actually ferment and eventually turns into wine. Now, I was going to bring wine, but then I thought, we're in a school system, and an open bottle of wine in a school is probably not one of my wiser things to do. I just don't know how that would go over. So just take it for the fact that I'm not even hiding the fact that this is just Welsh's grape juice. But what I love about it is that something that was has gone through a process of death. So the grape actually dies. It ferments and then turns into wine. Two things that were that are transformed. And what that just shows me is why he chose them. Well, they were common for the day. But so are we, just ordinary, common people that he transforms. After he instituted this feast, which we're still celebrating 2,000 years later, Jesus went to the cross. And there is, when you actually put the whole story and you put all the scriptures together, it's absolutely incredible when you actually see what Jesus did. The whipping, the... The, the lashing of his back with metal thongs that just ripped, ripped his back out. And he was wearing a robe, and when they took the robe off, it literally was pulling his back off in searing agony and pain. I don't know if you've seen Passion of the Christ and some of these other movies, but it was horrible, horrible death, considered a death of a criminal, cursed if you were on a cross. And they mocked him, they spit on him. They put nails in his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns upon his brow, and he's just there on the cross in utter agony. And he's doing this for us and says, remember me. 1 Peter 2.24, the result of the cross, the result of Jesus dying for us, being buried and rising again the third day, it says, in 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he himself wore our sins on the cross so that we, you and I, might be able to die to our sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. I've heard that verse used in many different ways. Some of it is actual physical healing, but it also includes healing from sin scars, from shame, from guilt, 
from the consequences of sin. His blood is poured out in death. There's no longer a need for an animal sacrifice that there was when Adam and Eve sinned and they were covered with skins. An animal actually had to die for them to be covered. And Jesus says, now there's no more need for anything to be slain. I have paid the price. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's freed us. He's reconciled us. Transformation of our lives is able to take place. So the Doug that was 50 years ago that would read this song and wonder, is it really possible that you could love me? Is it really possible that you could change me from this absolutely wretched person that I was even at the age of 11? Some of the stuff that I'd gone through and the shame that I was filled with, is it possible that you could change me? I can look back and say, because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done, he transformed me. And I am not that boy that I was. I'm not the man that I was even five years ago. I'm not the man I was a year ago. And he keeps transforming me and making me into his likeness because of what he did for me and for us at the cross. C.S. Lewis, if you know who he is, great author, uh, wrote during the Second World War, and he says this, he says, humans rarely pray for the thing that God wants them to pray for. They simply want enough grace to be seen by them through some moment or time of trouble. They conjure up a vision of the future they want and appeal for that outcome. But they really don't pray for what God wants. The most powerful prayer any of us could pray, according to him, would be quoting Jesus when he said, not my will, but thine be done. What does that really mean to you and I? Well, I was Googling, I came across a man. I'll say his name. He might mean something to you. He doesn't mean anything to me uh, as far as who he is, but he came up with a really good quote that I want to pass on to you as well. His name is Dr. D.W. Ekstrand, and it's in the States somewhere, but I don't know who he is. But he said this, He said, this is what it means to really give your life to Christ. This is what it means to really die. It means dependence on God and not me. By nature, I am selfish. By nature, I am self-centered. By nature, I am self-interested. By nature, I only see things from my point of view. I am self-focused. I worship me. I think about me almost always. And he calls that idolatry. Dying to self changes that. Dying to self in the quiet moments is when I talk to God and ask him to reveal those areas of my life that he wishes me to die to. That he says to me, Doug, you are so focused on yourself, it's become an idol. Will you give that up to me? And in the quiet of my time with him, I ask him, will you show me what that is so I can submit to you? There is a reason why it's so hard to be quiet with God. Because that's where transactions really take place. It's very hard. Sometimes I lead these silent retreats, and it's very hard, especially for men, to turn their brains off. and Just listen. Let God speak. Many of you may know of Bonhoeffer. A movie came out with him not that long ago. And he says of this, he says um, he was a German pastor during the Second World War that resisted the Nazis and was executed because of it. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids them, him, to come and die. 
when you're invited to come to faith in Christ, has anybody warned you that that's really what the invitation is? He bids you, come, receive of my life, but die to your own. There's a great preacher in the 1800s. He was a Reformed Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. They said to him, man, just the places were packed out, just absolutely packed out when they hear his message. But this was his comment on dying to self. He said, I have a new concentrated, uh, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, that I may die to self and live holy to him. What does this mean for us today? And as we were talking, as I was considering communion, it really was, this is a remembrance of what Christ has done for me, but it's a remembrance also that he invites me into his death. Now, I don't have to die all over again. He's already paid the price. The crazy thing about what he did is I can't even earn this. I can't do anything but receive it, which is the beauty of the way this is set up. We're going to have communion in a few minutes, and you're going to come and receive what he's already done. What can you do to earn that? But nothing. Receive what he's done. Can you save yourself? No. Can I receive what he did and receive his salvation? Yes. Can I repent? Yes. Can I turn of my ways? Yes. But can I make myself like him? No. I probably spent 40 years of my life trying to make myself like Jesus. Failing miserably until I finally learned the joy of just saying, I surrender to you. Make me like yourself. I cannot do this. Change me. I can't change myself. So he's paid the debt of my sin. There's no separation. There's no damnation. He's paid the consequences of my sin. There's a freedom to enter into this most holy place where I can come just as I am, and he receives me. I've been reading an author. I'm going to just read one paragraph from him. He was a South African revivalist pastor in the 1800s and early, early 1900s. His name is Andrew Murray, and I've been reading some of his because I recognize in today's quick-paced, drive-through, text, everything's so fast, I've missed a connection with the past. I've missed a connection with some of the ancients of old and some of the men that just spent days in God and weeks and years in God. And so I love reading of them and thinking, Lord, make me more like you. Make me more like you. So Andrew Murray says of this, and I I just actually just want to raise my hands. I I read this, and everything within me jumps for joy. And I I will try to apologize that it's old English, but if you're into Shakespeare, pretend it's Shakespeare. It's old language. But it says, Oh, my soul adores thee. As the prince of life on the cross, thou didst conquer each one of our enemies, the devil, the flesh, the world, and sin. As conqueror, thou didst rise to manifest and maintain the power of the risen life in thy people. Thou hast made them one with thyself in the likeness of thy resurrection. Thou wilt live in them and show forth in their earthly life the power of thy heavenly life. Isn't that crazy? That this life standing before you could bear the resurrection of Jesus and he declare himself in me. Do you think I could possibly do that? I can only receive what he's done. 
He conquered the devil. Romans 16.20 said he's crushed under the feet of Jesus. Hebrews 2.14 said he destroyed the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. He conquered the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh to suffer and be tempted in every way that we could ever be tempted, yet he never sinned. Oh, you don't understand? Yes, I do. Jesus was tempted in every way and never sinned. Wow. Why? So that this human temple could bear the Spirit of God in its limitations and be seen like Jesus. It's crazy. It's not by works. It's by His Spirit in me, in us. He conquered the world on the cross. John 16, says, I have overcome the world, the spiritual world, the way of life that, that uh, binds us. He's overcome that. He's conquered the world. And he's conquered sin. Colossians 2, 14-15 says, the record. I've actually sat with a man who abused boys and sat with a man that was abused. I've sat with a man who has murdered people and just recently sat with a sex offender. And every single one of them is welcome to this table. It seems unfair, doesn't it? But it's not based on what we've done. It's based on the grace of what's been given to us. There's not one sin he has not canceled. He has canceled the record of your sins. If there's consequences by law, they need to be paid. But between us, he has canceled everything I have ever done or anything and everything I've ever had done to me. The punishment that I deserved that stood between me and him. He put on himself, nailed it to the cross, so I would never, ever have to bear it. Wow. So today I invite you. This is a remembrance of what he's done. It's beautiful. He is beautiful. I love Jesus more now than I ever thought I could love him. And I can't wait till tomorrow because I'll love him more than I do today. This is life. It's so crazy when you compare it to the world and everything around me. What matters then is all just going to burn away, but he doesn't. It just keeps getting sweeter and better. So he says to us, OVV Church, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you and receive what I have done. You cannot do it, but you can receive it. So come. And receive of his body broken for your sins. His blood poured out for you in new covenant. And will you join me in doing this until he comes? So it said they broke bread together, they thanked God, and then they ended with a hymn. So, Father, we thank you for bringing Jesus in the form of a baby, perfect life, that on him would be laid all the sins of the world, my sins. Thank you that his body was broken, marred, bruised, destroyed. Thank you that one day... Um, I'll see you. We'll see him face to face. We'll see the scars. The only scars that'll be there will be those scars. And they'll remind us forever and ever and ever that Jesus paid a price none of us could ever pay. 
Father, thank you for Jesus that he rose from the dead, that because of that we can live in freedom, overcoming sin and death and guilt and shame. Thank you. Thank you for this remembrance. May we never take it lightly, but always pause and remember you that you did this for us and what it really means. We thank you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and enjoy the freedom that we have because of Jesus. Amen.